Well, good morning, church. As you can see, we're trying all sorts of new things. Um, let's see. Okay, got it. Just so you know, I'm looking at a clock, and uh, a new clock that we put up there, trying to know when exactly I should finish. How about that? So, uh, yeah, I know, some of you are like, finally. Um, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Echo Church. My name is J.D. Partain, pastor here. And um, as Jen already pointed out, we're having a party afterwards, and all people are invited. We are having a pie baking contest, and so there'll be plenty of pie that we can eat. And then we're also having a gift exchange and lots of fun things. So everyone's invited. I, I brought extra gifts, so hopefully uh, if you didn't bring anything, don't let that hold you back. We're in the middle of a series. The series is called My God and I, and essentially it's exploring six different metaphors, or what I call six different levels of relationship that we have between ourselves and God. As, and is this too loud? Are we good? Not, I'm not blowing anyone away. It sounds so loud. Okay, that's good. So uh, six levels of relationship. Uh, basically, we start with this metaphor of our father is compared to a, well, well let's just test the audience. Potter. What? Potter. Good. Good job. And we are the clay. clay. Good. All right. In the second lesson, we talked about the father being what? Shepherd. Yeah. So that would automatically make us the sheep. Good. That was easy. All right. And then last week, we talked about another metaphor, and that was the master and the sl slurvent. <laughs> slave, servant, slave, servant, either one of those. As master to servant. And if you've, if you've been tracking this lesson, you can see the level of relationship is growing deeper and deeper and deeper, right? When you're talking about a potter and the clay, you're talking about something that's kind of static. I mean, you, you make it and he's, and he's shaping it and there's something very unique and special about that because we're like a piece of art. We're unique. We're unlike anybody else on the face of this planet throughout human history. You are the person that he decided to make in that specific way. That's it's kind of beautiful when you think about it. But in terms of a relationship, not a lot really there, right? And so with each level that we go into, you know, the shepherd to the sheep and how there's uh, somewhat of a relationship there, right? And then last week we talked about master to slave, and that was a little bit of a difficult lesson for me to bring because when we think of slave, we think of all sorts of negative, right, horrific, atrocious things, and we should, right? But at the same time, what does it mean to be a slave to sin and then a slave to Jesus Christ or a servant to Jesus Christ. And at the end of that lesson, I hope you were, you were following along that, that in a strange sort of way, God has already dedicated himself to being our servant. And scripture bears that out in several different places. So today we're talking about a particular metaphor and you've never heard this title before and I went back and forth on whether or not I should even use it because it's a tiny bit cheesy, but I'll get to why I say it. And that is Father and Kiddo. I said kiddo. And I say that on purpose, and I'll get to that in just a second. But I'm going to talk about a few kiddos. That would be myself and my two other brothers. Every time I talk, I look back at Chuck a little bit, because he was there for all of this. <laughs> he lived with us. And so uh, my brother, uh, I was the oldest of seven, right? And those first three, we got to do a lot of life together. And Seth came later, but he, there was a little bit of an age gap, so he was always trying to, like, catch up and whatnot. But it was John David, that's me, JD, and then Joel. Joel was in the middle, and then Jeremy, all right? And we were very different people. And so I, I remember a story that my mother shared with me uh, about Joel. 
Joel was in the middle between Jeremy and, and myself, and he, he kind of mediated, right? He was sort of the liaison between the two because you had this really ex- incredibly rambunctious older brother and then this very methodical, uh, intelligent, <coughs> manipulative little, you know, little brother, and you had to make him get along, right? And so Joel was in the middle. He was kind of the peacekeeper, but it didn't seem to start out that way. Early in his uh, childhood development, when he's about the age of two, if I remember this, my mother would probably tell it better than this, but uh, about the age of two, he did something wrong. And whenever he did something wrong, or whenever he didn't get his way, he would pout, and his lip would stick out, and he'd be like... You know, we have some classic photos of it. So anyway, so he did something wrong, and my mother, you know, came down, brought the wrath of God in a very disciplinary way, and, and, and set him straight. Well, he didn't like it. And so she went back to making lunch in the kitchen, you know, and she looks at him, and he's just pouting. And then he walks off. She's making lunch. She looks back, and there he is again. It's like he just appeared. Only he's holding this little antique jar. He looks up at her, bam, throws it on the ground, you know, just shatters it, right? It's like, come on, you want to bring it? You know, it's like, come on. And so my mother was kind of like, oh no, what kind of a child do we have? And little would she know that really Joel is perhaps the most peaceful. He's, he is definitely the, the easiest, sweetest child of, of, can I say all seven, where he just, he really knows how to connect with each of us and bring us together. And so when I think of the word peacemaker, I think of him. I think of my brother, Joel, who is um, so objective. He would, he would try to uh, observe both sides of things. And when we look at this word peacemaker, you also might think of the Beatitudes, now, I've already preached on this, and several of you already know where I stand, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Jesus, at, early in his ministry, Jesus is going to be uh, really up in near Ga- Lake Galilee, all right, or Kineset, or whatever you want to call that lake. It's at the top of uh, really the Holy Land area. And he's going to deliver a sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, if you read Luke's account, it'll be called the Sermon on the Plain. But essentially, they're, they're the same thing. If they're not the same thing, then he did a repeat because they're very, very similar. And he does, at the very beginning of this, he talks about these things that we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, what's the first one? Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Yes, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so that he rolls out these, these blesseds are, right? And he talks about all these different things, whether it's poor in spirit. If you go over to Luke's account, it's just poor, right? And he talks about those who mourn, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. In Luke's account, it's just hunger and thirst. Like the people are hungry and thirsting. And so Je- Jesus is saying, blessed are they for this, for something will happen. I personally believe, and I know I'm in the minority, but I, it's, it's, it's certainly not a belief that I arrived at by myself. It was handed to me by a, a particular preacher down in Texas, and I, I, I feel like there's a, a, a number of debate around this. I personally don't believe that what Jesus is saying is it is good to be, necessarily, the first thing, poor in spirit, or mourning, or uh, the, the fact that they're hungry or hungering for thirst and thirsting for righteousness, all right? I think what's happened is this. I think before Jesus launches his ministry, what he does is he has this group of disciples, these people who are primed and ready to hear him. In other words, John the Baptist has been doing his work really, really well. He was the forerunner. He was supposed to go out into the wilderness, and his message was, repent for the kingdom of 
heaven is at hand, right? Repent. And so he's looking for those people who have penitent hearts, who are soft, who are ready to listen, who are ready to hear. Now, they might be sick of things, and I think they are. I think by the time they gather around Jesus and he's starting to preach, he looks across the multitude and he sees people who are poor in spirit. Because nowhere else ever does Jesus say it's a good thing to be poor in spirit. Ever. I think he recognizes it and he says, I know that you're poor in spirit, but you are about to be blessed by this thing called the kingdom of God. I know that you're mourning, but guess what? Because of the kingdom of God, what? In Luke's account, it says you will, you will laugh, right? He's, he's saying, you know, I can see that you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. You've been surrounded by these religious leaders and they're giving you the law and all this other stuff and it's very difficult to get right with God and you're, you know there's more to it. Well, guess what? You're about to be satisfied. And that's the way I see it. I feel like it reads better. I feel like it also correlates with Luke's account better, but we can debate it later. But he gets to this thing called peacemakers. He goes, blessed are those of you. There are some of you here. You're peacemakers. And you will be called sons of God. Well, that's interesting. So what does that mean? Seems a little lofty, right? Sons of God? So what does it mean to be sons of God? What does it mean for God to be our father and for us to then be the sons? And when I say sons, I'm going to be referring to sons all through this particular lesson. We're talking about sons and daughters, okay? I mean, we're essentially saying children, right? That's why I like the word kiddos, you know? But essentially sons is, is the way that it's translated. Sons of God. Well, what is it talking about? I mean, when we talk about what it means to be children of God, wasn't that the Jews, right? I mean, sons of Abraham, weren't they the children of God? And as Jesus is saying this to him, he's like, blessed are the peacemakers, here it comes, for you'll be sons of God. I mean, were they going, well, we, we already are. Like, can you give us another one, you know? I mean, is that what it is? Then there are some people who think, wait, I thought everyone was children of God. So are we? Are all humans, right, on this planet considered children of God? Because Paul talks about the fact that we're all children of God in a very general sense, right? So what are we talking about? Well, first of all, I just want to go into this. There's one little piece of trivia, and it kept popping up as I'm researching, and it would show up so often that I was just getting sick of it, and I didn't know how to blot it out. But yes, there was a cult back in 1968 down in uh, Huntington Beach that was called the Children of God. So if you Google it up, I guarantee you it'll take you there, especially because Netflix recently did a documentary on that particular cult called the Children of God. And they have all sorts of atrocities. They eventually fell apart in 1974, kind of restructured and then fell apart again. But anyway, when we're talking about children of God, we're not subscribing to a specific group of people. So let's just get that out of the way. But let's think about this. In terms of who is the Children of God, are we all children of God. I mean, you can agree that by the, the, the sake that he's our creator, right, the father of all things, we can say that in a sense, I guess, we're like children of God. I mean, Genesis 1.26 talks about this and the fact that he has sovereignty over all things. In Ezekiel, you'll hear the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, right? And he says these words. He says, all souls, all people, all souls are mine as the soul of the Father. I mean, that's kind of the analogy that he's, that he's talking about. But then 
he's really talking at that time specifically to the Jewish people. So it's not necessarily in that, in that general sense, but it is to the Jewish people. And what happens is this, is that Paul will later, in Acts chapter 17, he's going to take that particular passage of Ezekiel, and he's going to be arguing with these Greek intellectuals. All right, This is in the city of, of, of Athens. And so he's, he's making a, a, an argument, and what he's doing is, is he's trying to use some of the logic that the Greeks have. In other words, he's, he's building his argument. Paul's, he's, Paul's a master debater. He's like just fantastic at taking an argument and then using the context of the people that he's with in such a way that he's going to leverage it for the glory of God. And that's what he's doing. And so what he does is he's referring to this particular piece of Scripture, and he says, the God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Verse 28, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of our own poets, some of your own poets, he's talking about Greek poets, right, have said, but we also are his children, and the Greek word is genos, which is offspring, okay? And Paul, what he's doing right here is he's, he's essentially saying, because we're from God, you might see us as offspring or as children. But is he specifically saying that that means that all of us can be considered as children of God with this title? No. Not necessarily. What we do is we then kind of take the rest of, of Scripture, and we're going to go through that in just a second, and, and try to see, all right, how does this all fit together in terms of who gets to be qualified as, as children of God? But let me just tap on one more thing, and that is, what about the Jews? We already referred to Ezekiel. He's talking to the Jews, saying that they happen to be the children of God. But what's interesting is this, is that in Hosea, what you'll find is that God also says, you're not my people. <laughs> you're not my people. And I will not be your God. And the, the people that he's addressing in, in this particular passage, he is addra addressing the Jews, but he's addressing the Jews who have already fallen to idolatry, they're in the northern kingdom. They're already deciding not to follow God. And so in a sense, it's almost like they're being disowned by God. What would happen then is that um, Jesus would address certain Jews, and these particular Jews would also stand on the fact that they were Jews or the seed of Abraham. And Jesus would say similar words. He would say, actually, you are the father of the devil. This is in John chapter 8, verse 44. You're the father of the devil, and the lusts of your father, it is your will to do. In other words, whatever the devil is wanting you to do, that's what you're going to do, because you actually have him as your father. In other words, it's really difficult for us to say, all right, just because we were created means we're children of God. Or, if you're a Jew, just because you come from this lineage of Abraham means you're a child of God. And as we continue to look through Scripture, we begin to realize something. Obedience is essential in this equation. Obedience is essential. Who are you obeying? Who are you choosing to follow? So we have a role in the sense of who we choose to follow, but then God takes on this role of what it means to be a child of God. And honestly, what happens is this. Everyone has the potential to be a child of God. That's a really important point. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. You have the potential to be the child of God. You were created in such a way that you could be a child of God. But he also gave you a free will so that you could choose which, of the, which father you would, you would prefer to serve. 
Um, once again, the prophet Hosea, when he's saying to them, you're not my people, and um, the Lord then says, I will say to them that we're not my people, that you now are my people, and they shall say that you are my God. This is in chapter 2, verse 23, and Paul would use this later in Romans 9. He would say, concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call my people, and I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And the point is this, those who were not chosen before, or perhaps were removed from being chosen before, still have the capacity. They still have the capacity. You and I, we still have that capacity. There may be people here who are here today. You haven't surrendered your life to God. There may be people here today, right, right now, who maybe you were a Christian at one point, and then you decided you were done with it. As if, you know what, I'm through with this. And there's no hope for you, but I'm telling you right now, there is hope for you. There is always hope for anyone who wants to become and wants to be a part of what God would consider to be his children. And it's fascinating to me because what I want to look at is, uh, you know, what, is it, what does it look like to be a child of God? What, is it, what, what do we have to do to be a child of God? You know, what are the qualifications, etc.? And I go back to the Beatitudes and I'm like, well, that's interesting that he would say peacemakers. Because peacemaking, right? is going to be an attribute of what it means to be a child of God. Not someone of wrath. Not someone of all this uncontrolled anger. Right? It's easy to fall into that. But peacemaking. In other words, it's somebody who can look at this side and this side. Why would peacemaking be so central to the gospel message that Jesus would point it out as, as, as if you have this quality? Oh, you're primed perfectly to become one of the children of God. Because as we look, especially in Ephesians, what you're going to see is that there is this old law, this old system, and then there's this new one. This one was based on works. In other words, you work, 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 work your way to get better with God, to get closer to God, to get closer to salvation, etc. And now this law over here is one of grace. It doesn't matter what you do. It's because God loved you. It's a different kind of law. And these two, as Ephesians will point out, they clash with each other, and there's this wall that he calls the wall of enmity. And how in the world will that be torn down? Well, it'll be torn down by Jesus Christ, but it still is it's super uncomfortable. What does that look like? And perhaps peacemakers are the kinds of people who are able to help reconcile this, especially in this time, saying, listen, the old law was not just to throw away. The old law actually turned you into a Christian that prepared you for what comes next. Maybe peacemaking is central because guess what? We are supposed to be doers, but it's not our doing that gets us into heaven. That's how we reconcile. Are you following me so far? So, Paul addresses some of this with these Christians in Galatians, and I'm going to go through a lot of this really quickly just for the sake of time. Um, he writes to the, to the uh, when, you, when you look at the book, the book of Galatians, essentially what it is is it's a book that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. In other words, Galatia was not a city. It's actually this long strip of land that was considered to be a Roman province, and it included cities like Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And all of those cities, those specific cities, had churches because Paul would visit them and plant those particular churches. And what happened was this. After Paul planted those ch churches, he left. He's on a missionary journey. He leaves, right? Other people come in, false teachers, 
and they start teaching a different gospel. And the gospel that they're teaching to all of these particular cities, which are filled with Gentiles, is this. You have to become a Jew first. Uh, if you want to receive the rewards of God, you're going to have to first be a Jew. And so Paul hears about this, right? He's not happy. In fact, when he writes Galatians, some scholars call it Paul's most passionate use of Greek, <laughs> whatever that means. And you should hear the words that he used because in Galatians 1, he'll even repeat himself. He'll say things like this, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one that we preach to you. And I'll say it again, what we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you, that we brought to you, let that person be accursed. And so that's this book of Galatians. And so what he's doing is this, is he's approaching the fact that, guess what? These Jewish laws, these Jewish ordinances, they're not going to get you into heaven. They're not going to establish a unique relationship with God, and I'm going to tell you what that relationship is. And he's guiding them towards this relationship we're talking about today, that of father and son. It's fascinating because even the Apostle Peter and even Barnabas was persuaded by the Jews who were trying to say, no, 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 you've got to follow all the rules, all the you know, uh, Judaizing rules to, to get closer to God. And Paul's like, that is not the way it is. So he says in Galatians 3, and we're going to be uh, in Galatians 3 and then eventually 4. Galatians 3, verse 23, it says, before the, way of Christ, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. So let me put it another way. The law was our guardian. Now, your translation might say tutor. I'm, I'm using the, the NLT translation because I like this word. The law was our guardian. He's talking about the old law. It was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that way of faith has come and we no longer need the law as our guardian. He's already taken them into this, this path of establishing our, our identity as to who we are with God, with this word of, of guardian. And then verse 26, you are all sons of God, but it's through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free man nor neither male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. If he was writing to Jews, they would have probably crumpled it up and thrown it away. We are heirs. You are heirs to Abraham's promise. Something so sacred to the Jews themselves because they thought it was just for them. And he's saying, no, no, no. You don't understand. You're all heirs of that promise. And so that's what you get to receive. So what does it mean? This idea of being the heir of the promise and, and being you know, under this guardianship and then eventually brought in as a son. What does it mean to be a child of God? Well, it begins at birth. We can see that uh, there are several passages that talk about what it means to be born spiritually. You know, Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night. He's scared to death. He's a Pharisee, you know. It's like, all right, I hope no one's watching. You know, that's how he, he comes into the scene with, with Jesus Christ. And, he's, and it's great because he says these words. He says to Jesus, he goes, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus, like, ignores what he says. Have you noticed this? 
It's like he doesn't even answer his question if there was a question there. He just says, well, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of course, that puts Nicodemus, it sends him in a, you know, a tailspin. He's like, whoa, wait a minute. How can that be? Look at me, I'm an old guy. How could I be born again? And what is Jesus' response? He's saying, I assure you no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be reborn. What does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to have that level of relationship? It starts with birth. Number one, it starts with birth. John 1 verse 12 says, But to all who believed Him, and this is believed Jesus Christ, and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So number one is this. To be a child of God means you're born. But you're born again. It's a rebirth. Number two. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means that it will be an intimate relationship. Romans 8, verse 14 says these words. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these, these are the sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And this isn't the only place that's using that term Abba. And we've talked about this before, and you've probably read all sorts of different blogs about this, but Abba is essentially an Aramaic term, which means what? Daddy. What were the, what were the terms that you gave your parents, right? I mean, I, think about that. I, I, just out of curiosity, I put in my notes, nobody calls their father, father, and then I put, except Luke Skywalker. But, uh, <laughs> but, but instead of father, what would you, what would you call your dad. Anybody? What? Dad? Dad? How about daddy? Any daddies out there? Right? Okay. How about papa? Really? Oh, papa. Okay. Or pops. And then there's my brother Rob, my youngest brother, right? Dada. <laughs> Dada, right? I mean, with the, you know, it, there's this, so as soon as he has that particular phrase, Abba, we know that we're talking about a relationship that suddenly goes a little bit closer to the heart. It's the reason why I like the word kiddo, because let's kind of turn the tables on it, right? If, if your kid comes up to me, he's like, hey, Dada, do you go, hello, child? Like, I mean, you know, not unless they're in trouble. I'm like, hey, kiddo. That's what I say to my kids, hey, kiddo. Even when I'm a casa, I'm like, you know, talking about the kiddo. And, uh, and everybody is. They're always throwing that word around, kiddo, because it's, it's, it's like it comes a little bit closer and, and deeper to something that's special. I love the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, He says, when we're reading this particular verse, you know, that we've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Let us notice the word cry. We cry, Abba, Father. It is a very strong word, and clearly the apostle has used it quite deliberately. It means a loud cry. It expresses deep emotion. It is the spontaneity of the child who sees the father, and not only spontaneity, but confidence. Is it not true, parents? There's something very endearing every time your child refers to you as either mom, mama, dad, daddy, dada, 
I adopted my oldest son, as most of you know. <laughs> um, I remember when I first heard his voice, Lana um, was waiting and waiting for him to be born down in Chula Vista, uh, right below San Diego in California. <laughs> the due date was way off. But as we learned, her, you know, 3% are actually on due date. But anyway, uh, but essentially what happened was this. The baby was born, of course, the middle of the night. And my wife, of course, thought it'd be a great idea to phone me. And so it's like 4 in the morning. I get the call, and I'm like, yeah, hey, you know. And she goes, and all I heard was this crying child. <laughs> and it did not sound good. And so <laughs> I'm just like, okay, you know. <laughs> Can you put your mom on? You know, it's like that, kind of, that type of thing. And that's the first time I heard my son. But the first time I saw my son, this was before 9-11, when you were allowed to actually go through security, even if you weren't flying on a plane. And you could go all the way to the, um, what's it called? The gate, yeah, of course. And so she flies in on, you know, a plane, of course. And then all these people are coming off of the plane, and I'm waiting, and I'm just so nervous, and my heart is beating. I'm like oh, you know, please don't let it be an ugly kid. You know, it's like that kind of thing. And so um, everyone comes off, and I'm like, oh, this is all for dramatic effect or something. And there's my wife, and she's coming, and she's got two bundles. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> one was a bottle of champagne. So the stewardess gave her like a bottle of champagne, and the other was this little, you know, jelly bean of a child. And so she comes up, and she's like, well, look at your, look at your son. And, you know, I look down at him, he's like this little wilted lizard and everything, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, you know? And that's how I received my, my son, and then without the trauma of the, you know, hospital room and stuff that we had to go through with Miles. No offense, Miles. <laughs> Just get out! <laughs> anyway. But the memory then that I immediately go to was this. I remember when Cole was only a year old, and he, and he got really sick, and those of you who are parents, you can relate with me on this. When your kid has a fever, no offense, it's so awesome. Because the kids are so mellow, you know. And they just want to lie there. And so I'm holding Cole and he's just red hot. And my heart is breaking inside. And he's sleeping. And at one moment, he wakes up and he, and he kind of opens his eye. And as soon as he sees my face, this big grin comes up on his face. And he reaches out and he tries to grab my nose. And it's stuck inside of me for so long because there's just something about the fact that when your child recognizes his father, an assurance, you know, like a peace or a type of joy just kind of comes into the equation. It's like when a child recognizes that connection and that relationship, it's all good. There's an intimacy There's an intimacy when it comes to being a child of God. Back to Romans chapter 8, it says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That we are children of God. I like how the NLT writes that particular verse. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So the third point is this. There's an assurance. When you're a child of God, right? There's an assurance. And I don't understand what this verse means. And you know, I look it up and everything. I'm like, what do the commentaries say? They don't have a clue. But I'll read it to you again. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. 
I like this other translation. That's why I read it to you. I'll read it again. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And even though I can't quite understand what that means, I believe that what Paul is saying is this. When you're a child of God, the spirit makes it clear. There's an assurance that resounds inside of your heart that you are a child of God. If you're looking for evidence, I would say this. When the spirit is inside of you and inside of your heart, it manifests itself in different extraordinary ways, ways like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, right? And goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. We, all, we sing cute songs. But do you understand what it's saying? It's saying that it doesn't come from you. It's the Spirit. And where your former self, when you weren't a child of God, would probably rip that guy's face off for doing what he did, the child of God forgives and loves. There's an assurance that exists inside of us. And then number four, this is a really important point. God then informs uh, the people in Rome. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with them so that we may also be glorified with them. In other words, we have an incredible future. Let me just read you Galatians and I'll go really quick because I can see I'm over time because there's a clock up on the wall. Um, Galatians 4, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up. Even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father said. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual powers of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, which we are celebrating in a week, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but you are God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. We have amazing things waiting for us. I'm not even gonna say that. I, I don't even think the treasure is necessarily waiting for us in heaven. I think we're given all sorts of blessings as the heir right here on earth. I think he's already kind of doling out some of the inheritance, you know? In ancient times, especially in Old Testament times, it was the first son that was the heir. I still think this is the way we do it today. And, uh, you know, I still have my birthright. I almost sold it to Jeremy for some chili. But, uh, but I didn't, you know. So I'm waiting to cash in. But I know what my parents have. So, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I'm kidding. But, uh, but, but the, here's, here's the fact. It was always the firstborn that got the majority of the goods, right? It was the firstborn. In other words, they either get first pick or maybe the father says, you're going to have all of this stuff. Oh, you other kids, you can divide this part up yourselves. But it was the firstborn that got to have the majority of the inheritance, what was coming to them. I love what John Piper says. He says that Paul is saying that what is in store for us is this. It is so grand and so glorious that it will feel as though we each had alone gotten the most glory from God. That's how much you get to have. 
there is something that is waiting for us. As children of God, we have an inheritance. And then the fifth thing is this. The fifth thing to recognize when we talk about what it means to be a child of God, there is a family likeness. A family likeness. Now, I have to say this. I'm always pleased, greatly pleased, when people would ask if Cole, my adopted son, well, they would say things like this. They would say, he looks just like you. you know? And there's a part of me that, you know, you, you feel that warm, right, inside of you. And then you just can't help but make people feel like idiots. And so you say, no, he's adopted. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But then they would also say things like this. They would look at Cole. And they would look at Miles. They would look at Cole and look at Miles. And they would say, are they twins? Like, you idiot. (laughs) But the likeness was so much, it it was just so well aligned. People from different places, right? And yet the likeness was there. Another compliment I received one time was down in Atlanta. I had a friend who was a chiropractor, and I've told you this story before. My father comes, my mom and dad, they come, and they visit us and everything, and we're in church and whatnot, and he comes up to me, and he goes, that's your dad? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, that's amazing. His spinal structure is identical to yours. (laughs) (laughs) He goes, he's like, you guys walk exactly the same. And it's like, I mean, he had no idea, but it's like something inside of me just resounds. It's like, oh, I want to walk like my dad. I want to be like my dad. I want that relationship to be there. It's that intimate. And it's that significant. And here's the point. If you are children of God, you grow closer and closer and closer in likeness to Him. And I know what happens is this, is that our life actually kind of goes to crap. I'm, I'm, I'm just being honest. I don't know how many times I'll have baptized a kid, right, in the youth ministry back in Georgia. And then weeks later, he'll, he'll come up to me and be like, things are worse than ever. And I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. And they'll describe to me, maybe it's the temptations, maybe they had to break up with their girlfriend, whatever. And they attribute it to God and they attribute it to the fact that now they are walking as a child of God and it hurts. But don't you see? We suffer just as Christ would suffer. And we're told this over and over. We're told this even in this passage from Romans where it says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him, we will suffer. Christ faced rejection, you will face rejection. And it won't be necessarily just because of who you are. It will be because of the fact that you are a child of God. A part of, there's a part of you that probably cringes at that fact. But here's what I believe. I believe that a life in Christ is by far a life worth living, even despite the suffering. I think the likeness that we get to have with the Father, it, it grows and it grows and it ultimately manifests itself in heaven. But people will see a change even on earth. They will see that when your life goes to crap, you actually have peace. 
And when the bad things come and the storms roll in, you have a patience they've never seen before. And when things happen to them, the person standing beside them is the one who's decided to love them regardless of the way they were treated. That's the kind of life. That's the kind of likeness we have. As children of God, don't we want to grow closer to that? I think the whole thing, this whole metaphor was set up so beautifully with Jesus. And I'm just going to close with this passage. Jesus is, <laughs> Jesus is walking around in his ministry, and there were many times, many times, uh, probably way more than what we're, what we're given a glimpse of, where people would bring their kids to him, right? And so we read these words in Matthew 19. Some children were brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That's you. Pray with me. God, I thank you so much for what you have given. I thank you for these just these different levels of relationship, the creativity of being created as a as a as a from a piece of clay to something beautiful, as a work of art. I thank you that you have patience with me when I am led astray so easily like some stupid sheep. Lord, I thank you for the fact that my stubborn heart will not allow me to submit as a servant probably would, but you have patience with me all the same and you continue to allow me to serve you and eventually one day you will serve me. But Lord, I especially thank you for this relationship. I thank you for the fact that you are my daddy and I'm your kiddo. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that we are children. And children are difficult sometimes and stubborn sometimes. And sometimes they get mad and throw antique jars on the ground. And Lord, I just ask that you have patience. I just ask that you continue to draw us closer and closer and closer. Allow that Holy Spirit to stir within us and to testify and to join with us in our spirit in such a way that we have a strong assurance of who we are. And Lord, as you continue to mold us and shape us, may we look like you. God Almighty, things can be tough, but we praise you because through our tribulation, we are that much closer to Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he did for us. Thank you for what he went through. Thank you for the fact that he was born and that he was born in such a way that people didn't even comprehend it. Thank you for the fact that he is here. Please be with us, Lord. Use us and guide us. May we be light in the darkness. May we bring this good news, this true gospel of Jesus Christ to a very broken world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.